Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13. Remember I told you last week we we're going to be skipping a rock across the surface of the Old Testament? Well, this morning we're going to be looking at the prophets, God's walk with his people through the prophets. Last week it was through the law. Next week it's going to be through the, the writings, uh, the wisdom literature. And then we'll be done skipping that rock through the Old Testament. But this morning, we are looking at the prophets. Has anybody in here, or is anybody, is anybody in here a potter? Have you ever done the wheel and the pottery and the spinning? Anybody? I, I have one. I, I see that hand. I see it. Okay. Not too many people. It's not, it's not something folks do a lot anymore for some reason. It's, it's kind of entered that realm of, of, of crafty, arty people, uh, only a handful of folks do it. Well, what I have found is that potters often struggle with their clay. Uh, I don't know that personally, uh, but I did do a re little research, and I found this lady who blogs. Uh, she is a, a potter. Uh, I guess it's more of a, a hobby, and maybe she sells it. I don't know. But uh, it, she wrote a blog in 2013, uh, her name is Susan, and she wrote about her experience throwing, that's the, I think that's the term they use for when they start something new, they throw it, that brings all sorts of images in my mind for clay all over the place, um, but she said, I had a bunch of odd balls of clay left over from other throwing days, there's a picture of that uh, about to come up. And the last of my hundred pounds of clay was, long, got, was gone. The ever-thrifty person that I am, I decided to wedge up the small chunks into bigger chunks and throw them on the wheel. It started out good. Centering went well. Uh, I guess that's when you get it on the wheel in the middle so it doesn't fly everywhere. Uh, pulling out the plate. Uh, you see that in the center picture. She made a plate. Uh, turned out to be a challenge, but that's not new. I'm still learning the art of plate throwing, and it's tricky. Uh, what was new was the feeling in the clay. The clay felt really squishy from the outside, but after centering it, it got harder than usual. As I pulled up and out, you know, doing that little motion there, I felt little, little uh, bumps pop out. Not bubbles, but hard little pieces of clay. I, I cut a few out, compressed around a few, and kept on working, she said. She got a small plate and a bowl, that's center picture, I wanted a small cup or mug to go with it. I had another, uh, I had another bat. I'm not sure what that means. I, again, I'm thinking of baseball now. But uh, she had another bat, so I decided to give it a, a whirl. <laughs> whirl. I thought it was funny. Um, my gut told me to give up. The small ball of clay didn't feel right at all, but my stubbornness uh, won out. So I threw it on the wheel anyway. It did not go well. I, I pressed on. I got, it got worse and worse. I took that ball of clay uh, off and, and tried another of my re-wedged balls. No luck. I took it off, and she goes on to describe, and, and, and that's what she got. The third picture, she never got her cup. But uh, she goes on to talk about how she should have listened to her gut when she was molding, and she knew, hey, this, this clay is not going to work for me. But that, that's not the important part. I, I see a great theological lesson here that we're going to look, look at today. 
uh, imagine God at the wheel. God is often called a potter in, in the Old Testament. We're going to look at those, one of those verses where he's called that this morning. But imagine God at, at the wheel, throwing us on that wheel, centering us, molding and shaping the clay, pulling on it, forming and, and reforming, and, and having to maybe push in and, and, and start over, uh, press down and, and pull it out and shape. Uh, nope, that's not working with this one. And, you know, God knows all that. He's not surprised, and he's the master potter, so he can use any clay. But yet we get the, the, the image in the Bible of, of him having to do some of the very things that she talked about. Use some old lumps. Uh, use some tricky lumps of clay with, with uh, lumps and hard pieces in it that, that he has to cut out and, and, and massage uh, in so that they're, they're a part of the, the piece that he is creating. Uh, the prophets tell us of God's forming and reforming his people. Throughout the prophets, we see God doing that, building it up piece after piece, and this piece he, he works on for a while, and that piece will just, just will not respond to the potter's hands. And so he has to bring another piece in. We, we, we'll see that this morning with Saul. Would not respond to the potter's hand, so he had to do something different and brought in David. Someone who would respond to his hands. And we see this over and over and over through the prophets as God forms his people so that they can live called out the way they're supposed to. 2 Samuel 7.13 is kind of our jumping off verse this morning. And it says, he will build God, uh, or, or rather, not God, he's talking about someone in the future. He will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now this is a messianic prophecy. It's talking about Jesus here. This verse is the promise of that potter ensuring a perfect product eventually. He's saying, there will be one on the wheel that comes later that I will mold and sculpt, and he will be exactly what I want him to be. He'll be my son. We, we, we know that. And he will be the exact vessel that, that needs to be made. And there will be no lumps in this one. There will be no rough edges. There will be nothing to massage and smooth out because he will be exactly what He's supposed to be, and, and, and he will then be, we find out, the vessel for us, right? He, he will take our place as lumpy, bumpy balls of clay that are difficult to smooth out and get to be what they're supposed to be. Well, Jesus takes our place as the perfect vessel, if we continue with the analogy. But where, what we see here, when we get to this place in Scripture... That we see that God has kept his promises. He's kept his part of the bargain, kept his part of the covenant that we've talked about over the last three or four weeks, right? Uh, they're in the land. They have taken the land. Now, they haven't taken all of it because they were disobedient. They didn't do it the way they were supposed to. But he has promised them that you will have the land, and, and as they have been obedient to take parts of it, what they have been obedient to take, they've received. Where they have not been obedient to take, He's not just giving it to them. 
they had their part to do, right? The Levites now have homes, have land in each tribe so that there is a a spiritual presence. There are spiritual leaders there that are going to lead them, teach them how to live godly lives, how to live called out. They're right there amongst them, just like he promised. The people, though, well, they haven't lived up to their promises. Rebellion after rebellion after rebellion. See, in the Old Testament canon for the, for the Hebrews, for, the, for, for Jews, the, the prophets actually begin in Joshua and run through Isaiah, not in order, uh, but Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Isaiah, Jeremiah, then the, the minor prophets, the twelve that that uh, that we know about, uh, that I mean that we that we read. Those those are the the prophets. So we start with Joshua, and we see them taking the land. We we see in Judges this rebellion over and over and over. The the phrase that's used so often in Judges is they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You know we we hear this constantly. We hear it through kings that the, the kings did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But God is still at that potter's wheel. He's still molding. He's still reforming. He still presses it down and starts over when the clay will not respond the way that it should respond. That's what we see God doing. Now, it's interesting, as we get into this, we're going to talk about sinfulness. We're going to talk about a little bit about David's sin. We're going to talk about Israel's repeated sin. I've already talked about their rebellion. We're going to talk about a little bit in Jeremiah when they are already in exile, suffering for their sin. But what I want to begin right now with you is to understand that God's molding and reforming is not always due to sin. If you feel like God is pressing you down right now. He's, he's pushing in some edges. If you feel like he is massaging some lumps out of your life and you're thinking, God, what did I do? It may not be anything. It may be something. I'm not going to tell you he's not doing that because of sin in your life, but I am going to tell you that he may not be doing that because of sin in your life. He may be doing that because he is preparing you for later usefulness. So, so hear me this morning, as we talk about sins, I don't want you to think, well, I'm just a horrible person, God's constantly uh, beating on me. No, no, you may be a horrible person, I, I don't know that. Uh, but that's not necessarily the case. Maybe God is doing something, maybe he is making you into something that you can't see right now. And the pressure you are under right now is to make you more useful and more ready for what is coming later on. I know I've experienced that in my own life. You know, I, I haven't been uh, at all shy uh, about letting you know, uh, I know I talked about it the, the Saturday that I came uh, and, and visited with y'all in here in the morning. I've talked to staff about it over the last uh, few weeks at various times. I've been let go twice from ministry positions. Once as a, a youth and music minister about 13 years ago. Uh, I, 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 the, I had six months to find a new job. They they paid me. It was, it was all about money. Uh, they just, we didn't have any money, so I was the one that, that got cut. Uh, about three or four years later, as worship leader, wasn't such a nice in, in, uh, instance. Uh, I got told on a, a Tuesday afternoon, by the way, you're done now, thanks, uh, after a year and three or four months of being in ministry. Uh, the, the first time, clearly, I did nothing wrong. The second time, 
I, I know why they said I was fired, but I, I, I kind of disagreed. Uh, but, you know, differing opinions there. But what was going on there was God was putting me through this pressure. God was using people around me, using instances to, to, to mold me and make me into to, to something greater than, than I was. I hope I responded the way I should. I, I know that uh, those, my, my being laid off, that, that's been talked about here in the last week or so among folks in the church. And I'll, I'll, I will say that, you know, as we are talking about living called out, about being a church that is unified and going in the same direction, well, certainly gossip is not going to help that at all. And I will also say that, uh, you know, these are times when, when I'm proud to say I went through something that was tough and God made me better because of it. One of the questions that I understand was asked when it was discussed was, why in the world did we call a pastor who'd been fired twice? Well, interestingly enough, I have a friend, a mentor in uh, Arkansas that said any minister worth his salt has been fired at least once. Uh, and uh, I, it kind of works out that way. But I'll tell you why you called a pastor that had been fired twice from two ministry positions, because God called me here. God called me to lead you to live, uh, to, to, to live a life out loud, as our ministry is called, to live called out. God is doing something with me. God is doing something with you as he walks us through our, our various roles in life, our various positions in life, the various things that he does. God is doing something great in my life individually, in your lives individually, but in our lives as a community of faith. We see this throughout the prophets, this molding. We begin with David, and that's 2 Samuel 7.13 that we read a few minutes ago. We see an everlasting walk with David. God has promised David something incredible. See, David is this new beginning after Saul with all of his flaws. Saul would not be molded. For whatever reason, Saul would, would, would just resist. So there was a time where new leadership was called in. And that new leadership was David. And David with all of his flaws, because this passage takes place between having slept with Bathsheba, had Uriah murdered, and the birth of the son that was a result of that adulterous affair. That's when this scene takes place. That's when God promises something great to David and says, one day your child will sit on the throne forever. This messianic prophecy, it, particularly he's talking about Solomon, not the baby that's soon to be born. He's talking about Solomon for now, but Old Testament prophecy often, almost always, had a right now and later fulfillment. And so we see Solomon fulfills some of that, but there's some of it Solomon cannot fulfill. It's a down-the-road, one-day prophecy, and we see that that's Jesus. We see that God is keeping his promises. One commentator said, God's king now reigns over God's people in God's place. They are there. They are receiving the promises. Even the king of, as, of uh, David as king is a promise. But he promises David an eternal walk. Verses 13 and 16 promise that. This Messiah will be a king that sits on the throne forever. Y'all, we have a king that sits on the throne right now. He intercedes for us right now. He does everything that the king of Israel was supposed to do, but he does it better right now. 
That king is Jesus who sits on that throne. Solomon comes along, and when he builds the temple, because that's what started this, David wanted to build a temple for God, and God said, you know what, David, I've never had a temple. It's no big deal. You build your house. You have come to this place, and I have blessed you. I'm going to continue to bless you. I'm going to raise up a child of yours who will be king forever. We're not going to worry about temples, but you're not going to build a temple for me. It's going to be one of your own. But I'm going to establish your house much bigger than what you've built, your, your mansion here in, in Israel. I'm going, to, I'm going to establish your house forever. That promise is made. Solomon comes along. He builds the temple. When he dedicates the temple, he prays for all the nations. Because David says in verse 19, Thank you, Lord, that you have done this for me, but not just for me. This is a promise for all mankind. See, David knew something greater was happening than even he could understand. God was going to walk with his people for much longer than David could foresee. And so Solomon prays for all the nations at the temple dedication. He prays based on Leviticus and Deuteronomy that we talked about last week, those passages that we discussed. And when he prays and prays for all the nations, that this will be a place that all nations come to worship God, what he was realizing was Abraham's mission. The mission of Abraham's descendants to bless all nations. Genesis chapter 12, I will bless you and through you I will bless all nations. It's happening. Solomon understands that. David understands that. He knows that it's beyond us. Church, it is beyond you. It is beyond me. I am a very small cog in this very small wheel of a very major machine of the gospel being spread. It is not about me, this one little cog in the wheel. It's about the mission. David knew that. Solomon knew that. Just like Abraham and Moses and others knew that as well. And as we move through the prophets, as we move through Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, we get to Isaiah. Probably, I would say, the greatest prophetic book written. It, 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 is, it is beautiful what Isaiah did or what God did through Isaiah. I don't know that Isaiah was the greatest prophet. Um, Samuel ranks up there if, if I'm ranking them. Uh, Elijah ranks up there. Obviously, Jesus being the perfect prophet, priest, and king uh, is above them all. But, but Isaiah in his, in his writing, Isaiah in his willingness, when he goes into the temple in the year that King Uzziah died, and he, he falls down there, he's, he's worshiping there, and, and the heavens open up, and, and, he, and God says, Whom shall I send? Isaiah never points to somebody else. Never says, well, I heard, I heard Jeremiah was pretty good. You know, old, uh, old Hosea, he's a pretty good fellow. Send him. Here am I, Lord. Send me. And thus begins Isaiah's ministry. And we read over and over Isaiah covering hundreds of topics in the 66-ish uh, chapters of the book of Isaiah. In various places, he's, he's doing a number of things. First of all, he agrees that God's people has earned God's discipline. That's the first thing we see, and we see that, I believe, expressed, especially for this morning in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8. If you want to turn there, or just write it down so you can get there later. Isaiah says, yet, Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hands. Very worshipful statement, right? Very much a, a, 
uh, uh, an instance, a, a vision of Isaiah laying himself and his people before God. But if we read on, we see why. Lord, do not be terribly angry or remember our iniquity forever. Please look, all of us are you pe your people. You see, he's understanding, God, we are clay, you are the potter, we are in a position now where we deserve everything you give to us or, or everything we get from you in discipline. God, as you work those lumps out of the clay, as you press that clay back down to the center and start over, and it hurts and it's painful, for us, the clay. God, you are the potter. You make of us what you wish. Lord, you use us how you wish. Lord, you discipline us how you wish. He is molding and reforming. He, he is picking out the lumps. And through various trials of my life, because that, that laying off, as I expressed to you a little bit on that Saturday morning, that being laid off back in uh, 2003 began a wilderness wandering for us because we were hard clay on those, uh, in, in that time period and God called us to a particular place and we said, no, we're not going there. I don't want to go there. It'd be hard, whatever. And then God said, fine. And he began to really work those lumps out of us. And over the years, part of that being, being at a church where we had bought a home and lived for quite some time were very comfortable to walk in on a Tuesday morning and lose my job with no uh, idea it was coming and being told I had one more paycheck and that was it. And I had a three-and-a-half-year-old and a, a four-month-old uh, at the time, right two months before Christmas. It was in October that it happened. God working those lumps out of our lives. Whatever it was in my life that he needed to teach me to either overcome, to discipline me from the past, or to prepare me for the future, God was working, and Isaiah agrees, Lord, this is good. You are the potter, and I am the clay. Do with us what you will. Isaiah, further along, he embraces the promise and the mission that was given to Abraham. I promise you, Abraham, you will be a great people, but not only that, you will bless all people. Isaiah over and over and over talks about how the nations will be blessed. Our, our, some of our most beautiful prophecies of the coming Messiah are from Isaiah, the Prince of Peace, all of those, uh, the, the, the shoot from the stump of, of, of Jesse. Uh, the, these are all Isaiah's prophecies. One Christmas, I, I, I preached Jesus in Isaiah as we went through the prophecies of this coming Messiah, Isaiah took that promise that was given to Abraham, and he knew, God, you are going to do something marvelous through your people as you mold them, as you form them, as they live called out, God, I rest on that promise in the midst of knowing you are bringing discipline because Isaiah knew discipline was coming. Isaiah rejoiced in the Exodus. He talked about the glory of, of when God brought his people out. But that's why he could talk about the discipline at the time and say, you know what, we deserve this. Because God, you did something great in the past and we squandered it. Maybe, maybe churches can look in their past and say, God, we did, you gave us something great in the past and we squandered it. And I don't know how that was. Maybe it was using up a, a minister. Maybe it was gossip when there shouldn't have been gossip. Maybe it was disunity when there should have been unity I, I don't know I just know that when we come to a place 
where God is continuing to push out those lumps, pull some of them out, cut some of them out, massage others into the final piece that we can sit there and know God is making a wonderful, beautiful vessel if we'll let him. Isaiah waits on this Davidic king. Like I said, Isaiah talks about over and over the prophecies of this coming Messiah. Isaiah knows God is continuing to walk with the people. I won't see this. Isaiah knew it. He knew the virgin would conceive and bear a son. He also knew that that virgin, that maiden, would conceive in the next, oh, 10 to 15 years. And this was a promise to the king then. But Isaiah, I believe, knew there's more to this. God's always up to something bigger than we can see. God may tell us, you know what, folks, I'm doing this for you right now. But we always have to know this isn't about me. This is about God. This is about what God is doing through me in the future someday. Isaiah knew that. He was waiting for this Messiah, knowing that we will go through discipline. He even talks about the, uh, the exile that's coming. He talks about who will save them from the exile. Mentions Cyrus by name. Cyrus the Persian will bring you out of Babylon. He knew it because God told him. But he knew it because he was looking at where they were and saying God is up to something good even in the midst of our discipline. Isaiah knew that God will save his people. But that didn't just mean Israel. That didn't just mean a particular ethnic group or a particular political party, but that God would save his people. Isaiah over and over talks about all the nations being a part of this called out group and that he would defeat evil. I will save my people and I will defeat the evil. Isaiah knew it was coming. Isaiah knew that God would never leave his people he would discipline his people. He would start over with some. He would send some through some pretty painful molding and reforming, but he would never leave. And then we get to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, who now we see a new covenant walk with his people. Jeremiah was in the exile. Jeremiah experiences it firsthand. He was carried off with the folks in Babylon. He does a lot of his writing from Babylon. Later on, he, uh, goes to e he's in Egypt, and he does some writing there. Uh, Isaiah, I mean, uh, rather Jeremiah, we look and, and we really don't even see that Jeremiah ever converted anybody. He told the people, y'all, we're going to be exiled. Quit fighting. Lay down your arms. That's not a very politically astute thing to say, is it? And I, I'm not surely not going to say that at any point are we supposed to always just give in. But when God's people say, look, this is, not what the, this is not what we should be fighting. This is God doing something great. Then we as a Christian people should say, we're going to hold back and we're going to listen to what God's word says and not what the politicians say. Probably another sermon, though, for sometime around November. So Jeremiah suffers in exile, uh, but this suffering brings great news. The Messiah. They've been looking for the Messiah, right? Isaiah talked about him in 800-ish B.C. David talks about him in 1,000-ish 
B.C. Moses knew he was coming in 1400-ish B.C. Abraham knew he was coming in 2000-ish B.C. They've been talking about this Messiah for a long, long time. But Jeremiah comes along and God says to Jeremiah, let me tell you what it's going to be. It's not going to be what you think. The Messiah is going to be better than you think. Here in the midst of your suffering, here in the midst of, for you, Israel, for, for, for my people at this time, the worst possible place you could be in, let me give you the best news you could possibly hear. I've got something much greater. You're expecting a, a political leader. You're expecting somebody to come along and lead you back to the promised land. Let me tell you what you are going to get in this new Messiah, this new covenant. You had the law in stone. I will write my law on your hearts. You won't need people to, to, to speak to me for you or uh, speak to you for me because you will have it right there, right there, your law, the law on your hearts. And you will look at that, and you will know that you are mine because of the law in your hearts. He says, you will no longer need a sacrifice. You won't need somebody to come into the temple and sacrifice animals for you once a year. No more sacrifices along as sin offerings, because the sacrifice will be made, Jeremiah. One time the lamb will die. One time the lamb will rise. And one time you will be forgiven, folks. One time. No longer do we do it over and over. Read Hebrews, a wonderful picture of what Jesus did in replacing the sacrificial system. Jeremiah knew that and promised the people that as God walked with them, it would be a new covenant. God will be your teacher. No longer will you have need for the Levites, the scribes, the Pharisees. He's going to set up preachers. I'm not just talking myself out of a job here. Hold on. He's going to set that up. But it is not that I tell you anything necessarily that you can't know already because he tells us God will be the teacher. Folks, the Holy Spirit, when Jesus said, can you believe that Jesus said, it is better that I go away? Do you hear that? Jesus, I've got you right here in the flesh, God, right here in the flesh, right beside me. I could just see the disciples thinking it. But it's going to be better if you'll go away? He says, because I will send the Holy Spirit who will live not beside you, but in you and teach you and lead you into all truth and pray for you. God will be the teacher. Jeremiah knew that as he sees his people walk with God. And sadly, we don't realize it fully now, but we will one day realize this fully in the new creation. God will truly be our teacher. There will be no need for any law at all. It will be completely written on our hearts. And we will meet the sacrifice. First chapter of Revelation, the lamb on the throne. We will meet the sacrifice face to face. Actually, I think maybe that's the third chapter of Revelation. Can you imagine? One day, that new covenant walk is fully realized. We will walk with God as he intended with Adam and Eve. But now, we're molded. We're worked. We're shaped. We're reformed. Parts are pulled out. And we're redone again. And sadly, 
because of our unwillingness to be molded and reformed, sometimes the entire lump is taken and put aside. It has lost its usefulness. It is no longer available by, for God to use. And he brings in another lump and uses that one. So we see all that as God molds the Davidic line to bring us the Jewish Messiah. As he did those things to bring us that Messiah, as he molded that line. We see it as he shows Isaiah that the present reforming is for a future blessing, even in the midst of discipline. You do realize, people, God doesn't punish so that we feel pain for our sinfulness. That's not his purpose. I mean, if he wanted to do that, he could, he would just, he could, he could just strike us down, right? I mean, he could just zap us, we're done. But no, he disciplines. Dip, discipline is different from punishment. Discipline is to get an effect, a, 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 a change, something different on the end. As God molds and reforms, God shows Isaiah that that's for the future. And God tells Jeremiah of a perfecting new covenant begun at the Last Supper with a room full of Jewish men. And if we look around in here, we don't see that because Isaiah knew and Abraham knew and David knew and Solomon knew and so many others knew this gospel is for everyone. So if we look around here and we think, somebody missing somebody that should be here the gospel's for them if you look around town and you see somebody and you go wow I don't know about that person the gospel is for them God is walking with his people God is shaping us he's molding us he's reforming us for a purpose and y'all that purpose is to share the gospel that purpose is to see our church be a missionary light to sulfur and the rest of the world. God's purpose is that we as a people live called out. All of our flaws, all of our sinfulness, all, all of our issues, that is just ways of us showing God's grace. Paul said, do I sin more so grace can abound? Let it never be. I'm not telling you your sin is okay. What I am telling you that is even as God reforms your sinfulness, as he molds you and fixes your issues, God is then going to use that to bless somebody. Because I guarantee you there is somebody out there that's going through the same thing, struggling with the same thing that you are. And as you live called out in the midst of the life you lead, God will use you. God walks with you. And so we want to walk with him. This morning, though, I want to ask you, have you experienced this perfecting new covenant? This, this new covenant, this new relationship with God that, that makes us perfect. Here's, here is the beauty of salvation. When Jesus sees me, when God sees me, what does he see? Me in my wretched state, my sinful state? 
He sees me perfect. I know I'm not perfect. He knows I'm not perfect. But yet I am perfected. In Christ, I am made perfect. I'm done. I got a ways to go, but God sees me as perfected because he sees the blood of Jesus. He sees my relationship. That new covenant did something that the old covenant could not. It made people who follow him, who trust Jesus as their Savior, perfect. And you're thinking, Michael, there's no way. I'm not perfect. I know that. I'm not either. But he is perfecting me, working out those lumps, pulling some things out, massaging some things in. What's he doing in your life? Christian, every Sunday the invitation is for you. I will speak of the gospel and I will share the gospel because I don't know who here has never trusted Christ as their Savior. So I want to express that clearly, as clearly as I can. But Christian, the gospel never grows old for us because I guarantee you in your life, because I know in mine, there are things that I need to repent of as well. The blood keeps me clean, but I need to come to him and confess and admit, Lord, I am not where I need to be. So as I move through the gospel presentation, Christian, don't sit there and think, well, I can tune this out. What am we, where are we going to lunch today? Because I'm, I'm, I'm saved. I'm all right. So let's see. Uh, Quaker steak. I don't know if they have a bunch. Of, you know, I don't want, no. This is for you. So I ask you, every person here, do you understand your sinfulness? Do you understand that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? Lost person, you're thinking, I'm, what does that mean? Am I a lost person? Have you ever trusted Christ as your Savior? Let's start at the beginning. Do you know you're a sinner? Because you have sinned. Do you understand that you cannot be good enough? Christian, here's grace. You can't be good enough. You can't earn something you've already been given. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. I have earned death by my sinfulness. I deserve the discipline, right? Isaiah says, I, have, I, I deserve it. Ultimately, I deserve the punishment, the wages of my sin, specifically, especially, primarily because I have rejected his grace over and over and over. I've heard this message before, Michael. You've talked about the gospel every Sunday you've been here. I got it. I don't believe it. You reject his message. You earn the punishment, the wage that is given. But you don't have to. But the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You have a way out. You have this new covenant walk with God available to you, but you must choose. Even in your sinfulness, let me tell you people, there is nothing you have done. I will say this every Sunday until I no longer have breath. There is nothing you have done that can make Jesus refuse you if you turn to him. I do not care what your sins are. I do not care the lifestyle you lead. I do not care what you think, well, I'm sure these things, but not that one. No, that one, probably more especially that one. Jesus loves you and wants to take your sins, every one of them. And he proved that when he died for us while we were still sinners. Jesus died. And all you have to do 
is call on him. Trust him. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Folks, it is that simple. If I had a microphone, I'd drop it. Because it is purely that simple. Admit you're a sinner and repent of those sins. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And confess, Lord, I want to be yours. Have you done that? Christian, you've done it? Incredible. I celebrate with you. What do you need to repent of? What do you need to give him today? What is a lump that you've been hiding in the clay, thinking, well, he won't find this one? Oh, yeah. Maybe you need to push that out a little bit. This morning, in this time of decision, do you need to come to Jesus for the first time? Lost person, sinner, unbeliever, non-follower of Jesus, whatever phrase you want to use. Christian, do you have something you need to give? Today's your day. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, that in everything you have walked with us, Lord, this, this walk that you have with us is to, is to form us, is to mold us, is to reform us. Lord, it, it hurts, but God, it is for our good, for our blessing, for our future use, for our discipline. God, thank you that, that you have not taken me off the wheel and said, I can't use this clay anymore. It just will not respond to my hands. Thank you that you have not taken this church off the wheel and said, I cannot use this church anymore. It just will not respond to my hands. Lord, let us be malleable and soft, responsive to where you lead and how you lead. Lord, this morning there's someone here, someone listening who doesn't, doesn't know you, has not trusted you as Savior, maybe not even sure really yet what it means to do that. Lord, I pray that they will come forward. Let me talk to them. If not now, Lord, after the service, maybe grab a friend that they know. What does he mean by that? Can I really be forgiven for whatever that might be? Lord, let them know that yes, they can, that you love us. Lord, may the Christians in here respond, giving up lumps, giving up spots in their lives. They know that they've held back, that they've not allowed you to work out of their lives. Lord, let this be the day they begin to push those things out and have it no longer mar the integrity of the vessel that they could be in your hands if they would just let you work the clay. Lord, every heart here has a response to make, and I pray that every heart here would do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is...